After 11 years of declining enrollment, Chicago public schools are no longer the nation's third largest district. And Chicago hospitals have committed to equitable care, but rising costs and tightening budgets potentially threaten that progress. I'll talk about it with Crane's healthcare reporter, Katherine Davis. You know, basically what we're seeing right now is uh, that federal emergency funding that was given to address the COVID-19 pandemic, that has begun to dwindle, right? A lot of those grants are expiring and they're not being renewed because, you know, we are sort of on the back half of the pandemic now. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, October 4th. At Wintrust Community Banks, you're more than just another account number. No matter your stage of life, Wintrust's dependable bankers are as dedicated to your financial success as you are. After three decades of serving communities across Chicagoland, Wintrust has built its reputation on exceptional customer satisfaction and a strong local presence. That's why Wintrust is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in retail banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. Visit Wintrust.com slash J.D. Power to learn more about Wintrust's award-winning banking experience. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2022 award information, visit J.D power.com slash awards. Chicago hospitals have committed to equitable care, but rising costs are squeezing budgets and threatening that progress. Joining me now is Crane's healthcare reporter, Catherine Davis, who wrote about the issue recently for Crane's Forum. Catherine, welcome back to the podcast. So tell me about this, this reporting that you've done. So, you know, this month's forum was really centered around what equitable health looks like in Chicago. And, you know, there's there's a multitude of things going on. You know, when we think about health equity, what I really discovered in my reporting is that it goes, you know, farther than who your doctor is, where you're getting your prescriptions, and, you know, essentially the the access you have to our healthcare system, right? There's so many other things that go into this, like your income level, uh, what neighborhood you live in, um, you know, what kind of family you're raised in, your your ac- how accessible uh, grocery stores and healthy food and farmer's markets are to you. Um, you know, it's a number of things. And so the right crane's angle for us to take was to look at what local hospitals in the Chicago region are are doing to sort of offset some of the health disparities we see and specifically look at some of the initiatives hospitals have that take place outside of the four walls of the hospital, right? Um, You know, we've seen health systems from Northwestern Medicine to the University of Chicago Medicine to Cook County Health and and Rush University Medical Center set up health equity programs in in the communities that they serve, you know, and so it's not just um, about, you know, providing more charity care or treating more patients on on government-sponsored health plans. It's also, you know, giving money to homeless shelters, ensuring that, you know, fewer people are on the streets because, you know, it doesn't take much to uh, understand why, you know, someone's health, uh, you know, could be put at risk if, you, if you're living outside, if you're living in, 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 in really terrible conditions. And so, you know, one of the big players of, of my story is Cook County Health. Um, you know, they're the area's largest public uh, safety net health system. 
And they set up early in the pandemic what they call the Recuperation in a Supportive Environment Center or the RISE Center. And it came about during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic when Cook County Health was looking for ways to shelter homeless residents um, that were sick with the virus. And so now two, three years later, uh, the the RISE Center is still in operation and, you know, it's still a place for uh, housing insecure patients to recover from COVID, but it's also become a place for housing insecure patients to recover from any medical illness. It was great to get some perspective on what these community health equity initiatives really look like and the impact they have. The RISE Center uh, is in Oak Park, and they have 19 beds across 15 rooms. So, you know, not that many people can use it at once, but for, for you know, for people that really need it, this can be, you know, an incredible resource. And a lot of healthcare systems in the last couple of years have made plans or made announcements for different kinds of health equity programs. And as you've noted in your reporting, just about every health system in the Chicago area, public and private, has some kind of effort of that type. And I think that's interesting that you noted that that can extend beyond the hospital, that that's not just like as needed care, that can be access to food and things like that. And as you said, not hard to connect the dots of why that matters, having access to shelter and and food and all of that. As hospital budgets have been squeezed over the last couple of years, are any of the health systems having trouble making a business case for doing that? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question because, you know, hospitals are really in a financial bind right now, right? And this is reaching hospitals that are considered safety nets like Sinai Chicago and Cook County Health all the way up to, you know, some of our biggest healthcare chains by revenue. Think Northwestern Medicine, the Advocate Auroras of the world. You know, basically what we're seeing right now is uh, that federal emergency funding that was given to address the COVID-19 pandemic, that has begun to dwindle, right? A lot of those grants are expiring and they're not being renewed because, you know, we are sort of on the back half of the pandemic now. At the same time, we're seeing inflation driving up the cost of supplies and medications for hospitals. You know, I've talked to many sort of CFOs and other executive level hospital people who've said, you know, inflation is really tough on the medical industry. And, you know, for a number of reasons, hospitals are sort of in a unique position where they can't immediately raise prices for their patients, even though, you know, their expenses are rising. And then at the same time, you know, we're also still seeing the financial effects from the ongoing industry-wide labor shortage in healthcare. So, you know, many hospitals are, you know, paying their employees more in this really competitive market, and others are still relying on staffing agencies or nursing agencies, which often cost more than employing nurses or physicians of your own. So those are some of the economic headwinds, I think, that are really important to understand when we're talking about these health equity programs, because running a health equity program is oftentimes not a revenue generating program, right? I mean, a lot of it is sort of would fit into the philanthropic bucket of, you know, charity care um, and care that doesn't often see a return. And so, you know, none of the hospitals that I spoke to, you know, said that they were cutting back, said that, you know, they were 
rethinking any of the programs that they've launched in the last several years, but they certainly did acknowledge that the economic challenges were going to make you know, running a hospital more difficult on all fronts, and that includes health equity as well. Yeah, and it's kind of one of those like uh, building for the long tail, right? Building for the long term kind of things. Obviously, helping people with housing insecurity, food insecurity, things like that, obviously will have an impact on health outcomes, very obviously. But in a healthcare system that is pretty tied to individual interactions with a medical professional, right? And the revenue from that, perhaps that is a little bit trickier. One thing you noted in reporting that I think is important is that most hospitals are required to pay attention to health equity in their areas and publish regular community health assessments. So this is really building on and perhaps even responding to what is being discovered in those assessments. Is that fair to say? That's absolutely right. Yes, the Affordable Care Act requires nonprofit health systems that receive tax breaks, essentially, to, you know, do these community assessment surveys every year of the communities they serve and sort of figure out what are the biggest challenges in, you know, people getting access to the care they need um, and, you know, what can offset some of the, the health disparities or the chronic conditions that are particularly Uh, afflicting those communities. You know, one thing I want to um, just sort of point out here is, you know, back to the funding model for health care systems and how they think about, you know, their survival is I was talking to Dr. David Ansel. He is the senior vice president for community health equity at Rush University Medical Center. He's also written this uh, really insightful book called The Death Gap, and it's all about the uh, health disparities here in Chicago. And I just want to read you this quote because I think he said it best. The whole funding mechanism really encourages short-term financial thinking over long-term health thinking. And, you know, I've heard sort of the same thing from, you know, many people working in healthcare that the objectives of, of making money and helping people sort of sometimes butt heads. Sure. And another thing that you've noted in reporting that I think is really important to highlight is this is particularly important to deal with in Chicago as compared with the national average of health outcomes. It's a little more acute here. Explain that. Yeah. So, you know, throughout the pandemic, we have seen uh, Chicago residents' life expectancies decline um, across all racial groups. So I'll just give you some quick stats here. For Asian and Pacific Islander Chicagoans, their life expectancy dropped from 82.8 years in 2019 to 80 seven years in 2020. And we've seen similar drops for Hispanic and Latino residents, white residents, but black residents, they saw their life expectancy drops from about 72 years in 2019 to below 70 years in 2020 at 69.8 years. That is the life expectancy for black Chicagoans right now. And that's a 10 year gap between Black Chicagoans and white Chicagoans now. And, you know, there's a a multitude of reasons that have contributed to that. Chicago has a history, uh, you know, with systemic racism, with redlining, with segregation in our city. There's many, many South Side communities that have less access to health care, fewer 
pharmacies in those neighborhoods, um, you know, and we know that many of those neighborhoods are also, you know, blighted and, and many residents live in, in poverty, which is, you know, one of the biggest drivers to your, to your life expectancy. And when I compare these life expectancies to the U.S. life expectancies across the board, Chicago does fare off a little worse. Um, I would say our life expectancies here are about, you know, a year or two less than, you know, the average American in, in the respective racial groups. So that's not great. That's not good news. Yeah. So in addition, you mentioned the RISE program. What other groups are, are doing innovative work in this space in around health equity? Yeah, the University of Chicago Medicine, I think, is doing something really interesting with their child asthma program. Basically, what they've done is hired these community health caseworkers who they will match with families who have a child that is suffering from severe asthma. And so I met one of these families a couple weeks ago, uh, Marta Rodriguez and her son, Yadiel Hernandez. Um, They live on the southwest side, and Yadiel, he's nine years old and was diagnosed with asthma at just two years old. He's, you know, battled with this most of his childhood. He has stayed in the ICU after having severe asthma attacks. He missed much of the third grade because his asthma was so severe. His mother didn't want him going to school where he may be in a situation that someone didn't know how to handle his his asthma. And so he was homeschooled for much of third grade. And so they've just, they've been through a lot with Yadiel's illness and, Last year, they were connected to this asthma program run by UChicago Medicine, and a caseworker helped uh, Yadiel get access to asthma injections. Um, They are monthly injections, but they are extremely effective, from what I know, at preventing asthma attacks. And so, you know, this case manager sort of helped negotiate with, with their insurance plan to make sure they would cover these shots and, you know, help them sort of facilitate where they can go to get the monthly injections. And, you know, Marta was telling me that Yadiel has, has, has significantly improved since he's been getting these. He's, you know, gone back to school. He's happier. He's having fewer asthma attacks on a monthly basis. You know, and she says that she wouldn't have been able to get past those insurance hurdles had it not been for this help that she got from UChicago Medicine. And I think, you know, that's just one family and one example, but UChicago Medicine says that it's serving, you know, close to 300 patients, families a year now in this program. What about in other parts of the city? What examples have you seen? Northwestern Medicine has also committed to work like this. You know, they recently gave $1.7 million across nearly 50 organizations. And these entities range from those offering housing services to nutritional support, transportation, mental health care, um, even primary care. And, you know, I think one of the interesting organizations they gave money to was Oak Forest Chapter of Sleep in Heavenly Peace, which is a nonprofit that provides beds for children who are sleeping on floors and couches. And doesn't it doesn't sound like traditional health care, right? I mean, you know, it's not doctors and lab coats and, you know, in the facility. It's more basic necessities for people. But, you know, when I was talking to Northwestern, they were like, you know, we can't even be successful clinically if 
you know, food and housing, transportation, all these other life factors, if those are not addressed. Right. So what's next for a lot of these organizations that you talked with? What's kind of, what's the pie in the sky for them? And what are they kind of pointing towards in in terms of of what they're going to tackle next? I think for most of them, the, you know, the real focus is closing the death gap in Chicago between Black Chicagoans, Latino Chicagoans, white Chicagoans, and putting everyone sort of back on a longer life expectancy. Because before the pandemic, life expectancies were getting longer in Chicago and elsewhere, and the pandemic really set us back. And so I think, you know, most of these healthcare organizations want to address the life expectancy gap broadly, but make sure it's done in an equitable way, right? We want to make sure that everyone's life expectancy is increasing and not just those of certain races or of certain income brackets, that it's really comprehensive approach to making sure everyone in Chicago is living longer. Certainly. Your, your reporting is always so interesting, and I always learn so much from talking with you. Thanks so much for swinging by today, Catherine. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, Chicago-based United Airlines is set to exit JFK Airport after a dispute over expansion. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Are you thinking about earning your MBA? With a fully online iMBA from the University of Illinois Geese College of Business, you can earn your degree on your schedule without ever leaving your home. You'll learn from Geese College of Business's top faculty and build a global network of experienced peers. At an all-in cost of $23,000, it's no wonder the iMBA comes with a 96% student satisfaction rate. To learn more, visit onlinemba.illinois.edu. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Chalk Beach, Chicago, citing official data released Wednesday during a school board meeting, reported that there are now just over 322,000 children attending the city's public schools, roughly 9,000 fewer than last year. And that's more than 80,000 fewer students than there were a decade ago, when city officials closed 50 schools citing low enrollment, and more than 115,000 fewer than were enrolled 20 years ago. Miami-Dade County Public Schools has overtaken CPS as the third largest school district in the U.S. The Florida district enrolled nearly 325,000 students as of September 1st, according to the district. Clark County in Nevada remains the fifth largest school district with just over 305,000 enrolled. New York City Public Schools is the largest district with more than 950,000 students enrolled last fall, and Los Angeles Unified School District is the second largest with more than 430,000 last year. Chalkbeat noted in reporting that the decades-long decline in enrollment accelerated during earlier stages of the pandemic, with more than 33,000 students leaving the district since the fall of 2020. The pandemic-related closures and remote learning put unprecedented pressure on public schools across the country. But according to a presentation given to school board members Wednesday, the reasons for Chicago's declines are varied and in some cases unclear. Chalkbeat noted that most students that left Chicago schools for reasons other than graduating went to schools outside the city or transferred to private schools, though both of those moves happened less this year than they did last year. 
The number of students switching to homeschooling went up during earlier phases of the pandemic, but those numbers came back down this year. District officials did see an uptick in the number of students considered dropouts and those who simply didn't show up at school. District officials also noted that some parts of the city saw steeper losses than others, including the predominantly Latinx neighborhoods of Pilsen and Little Village. But despite shrinking enrollment, the district's budget has grown to $9.4 billion, up from around $5 billion a decade ago. Helpful has been a new state funding formula and a wave of pandemic recovery money. Still, schools were hit with budget cuts this spring. Union leaders, activists, and parents urged CPS to rethink its school-based funding model that they say ultimately results in declining enrollment and more school closures. But as Chalkbeat also noted, with a moratorium on school closures until 2025, a key question for the current administration is whether budgets will, and even can, continue to be tied so tightly to enrollment. Find more educational reporting at Crane's sister publication, Chalkbeat Chicago. Clostrobio, a Chicago pharmaceutical startup developing therapies for food allergies and ulcerative colitis, has raised new funding from investors, including local life sciences incubator Portal Innovations, where Clostrobio has an office and lab. Catherine Davis reported that Portal led the startup's new $4 million financing round. The funding brings the startup's total financing raised to more than $10 million since it launched in 2016. In 2018, the company raised $3.5 million in seed funding from investors, including Morningstar founder Joe Mansueto. Cluster Bio, which has yet to generate any revenue, is developing an oral drug that delivers medication to help repair the intestinal barrier and prevent symptoms associated with food allergies or other intestinal issues like ulcerative colitis. The startup, developed at the University of Chicago, has focused thus far on addressing peanut allergies, but the startup's chief operating officer told Cranes he expects the therapy to treat a range of food allergies. The new funding will allow Cluster Bio to complete its trials and to hire drug development scientists. Davis also noted in reporting that Portal Innovations, which has been expanding in Fulton Market, now has 20 life sciences startups working out of its two lab buildings, totaling nearly 50,000 square feet across both sites, Portal Innovations offers its members funding as well as lab space in exchange for equity. City workers will get up to 12 weeks of paid parental leave under a new policy announced by Mayor Lori Lightfoot. The policy, which goes into effect January 1st, expands the parental leave policy that previously allowed four to six weeks for birthing parents and two weeks for non-birthing parents. The city said the changes make Chicago, quote, one of the largest cities in the Midwest to have such a progressive and innovative policy. The policy will apply to about 32,000 city workers and will cover those who expect a child through giving birth, as well as through foster care and adoption, and those acting as surrogates. Workers eligible for the benefit will receive 100% of their pay while on leave and must have worked for the city for at least a year, working a minimum of 1,250 hours during the 12-month period. Mayor Lightfoot said in a statement, quote, ensuring parents have time to bond with their new child, heal from birth, and receive their wages will have long-lasting positive impacts on our employees and city. The mayor also said the pandemic revealed how much help families need and how detrimental unpaid care work is for the labor market. 
United Airlines plans to suspend service at New York's JFK airport following through on a threat last month to halt flights if regulators didn't allow the carrier to expand there. The decision, effective October 29th, will affect four daily flights. The carrier's New York area presence is largely concentrated at nearby Newark Liberty Airport in New Jersey, as well as at New York's LaGuardia. The 100 United workers based at JFK will be transferred to nearby stations and there will be no job losses, according to reporting from Bloomberg. United said its current JFK schedule was too small for the carrier to be competitive, though it continues to see the international travel hub as a key part of its network. The company said the JFK move would be temporary, though it didn't specify how long the halt would be in effect. For backstory, United had sought to expand its operations by gaining additional slots at JFK, which hasn't increased total flight capacity since 2008, despite a widening of runways and other infrastructure improvements. That, according to an employee memo United sent last month. The carrier said at the time that it would end operations there if federal regulators didn't review runway use and allow it to increase flights. The FAA said in a statement on Friday that it would continue, quote, doing its part to expand airport and airspace capacity around New York City and that it was encouraged United would retain its JFK-based workers. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's healthcare reporter, Katherine Davis. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.